Good evening. Let's let's pray. Our Father, I thank you for this time that you've given us tonight. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, for the truth that you have breathed out for us to know about your Son, Jesus Christ, and the truth of your gospel in every book. Father, I thank you for the book of Jonah that we've studied these last um, almost uh, three months together. Lord, I thank you for this, the message that it proclaims. And I pray, Father, that uh, as we close it tonight, it would be more apparent to us than it has been yet. And so, Father, would you help me speak? And would you help everyone listen? And this I ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, the theme that slowly but forcefully emerges throughout the book of Jonah is God's overwhelming commitment to save sinners and how his heart spills over into the human sphere. He's moved in us to make his heart known now to all nations. God is mighty to save. He's relentless about saving. Merciful and even gracious to the worst of us, and not just brutal regimes, but disobedient, self-righteous, resentful prophets. The salvation of God encompasses the spectrum of all humanity. The city of Nineveh, with her repentance and brokenness before God, embodies the attitude that everybody should have toward Him. And then, with Jonah, a covenant member, And his nation, God's old covenant people, Israel, refused to be broken and repentant before God. That was the context into which this book was written, in spite of the knowledge and favor about God and from God that they had. And so tonight is the end of Jonah. In the midst of this display of God's merciful love for his wayward prophet, we get a glimpse of the missional heart of what it is that motivates God to act this way. And what should blow us away as we bring it into our study here is that nothing motivates God to be this way except God. This is just who God is. So watch how God mercifully pursues Jonah here at the end. How he reasons with him, teaches him, because he loves him, as he loves Israel and will not, in this context, forget them. Let's start in verse 5 of chapter 4. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. So Jonah, once again, calls for divine euthanasia, if you will. Just kill me, God. Just kill me. This is ridiculous. I'd rather be dead, is what he's saying. And he goes out and he sits somewhere with a view and gets ready for what he hopes will be the show. You know, maybe Nineveh will get it after all. Maybe they'll mess up. Maybe their repentance wasn't genuine enough. 
But if it's going to burn, Jonah wants a front row seat. And if it doesn't burn, he wants to see God's injustice with his own eyes. So he's huffing and puffing. He's mad, just like his nation would be at Jesus in Matthew eleven seventeen through 19. They call Jesus a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. We talked about this this morning. That was the root of all that grumbling and hatred and frustration with Jesus. It was who Jesus chose to be friends with who Jesus chose to give mercy to. So God is just not doing what Jonah wants. And he couldn't wait for these wicked people to get what they deserve. How in the world, by the time we come to chapter 4, is Jonah still breathing? Rather than destroying him for his audacity, God moves towards Jonah in mercy one more time. Consider that. In verse 6, God appointed a plant This is probably a castor oil plant to be specific, which is good. Jonah needed some castor oil. The primary function of the plant, it says, (laughs) it would maybe it would have helped. Maybe that was the whole problem. The primary function of the plant is to save him from his discomfort. It's actually probably better translated evil. Save him from his that that's why God gave the plant or caused the plant to grow for Jonah. So how kind God is being to him here. And Jonah is, of course, exceedingly glad because of the plant. He took a liking to it. He was happy it was there. You know, this this is very nice, Jonah's thinking. And then in verse 7, the next day comes and God appoints again. And he appoints a worm this time at dawn that comes and attacks the plant so that it withers. So that's a fast-acting worm, right? It's a fast-acting worm. So God is involved in this, even in the minutia of all the details. Jonah awakens to find his precious plant decaying right in front of his eyes. And then the sun rises in verse 8, and God appoints again, this time a scorching east wind. So now the sun is beating down on Jonah's head. One day after he sat comfortably under a plant, heat makes you irritable. We all know that. And Jonah is already furious. This was the last straw calls on the Lord in verse 8, it would be better if I just died out here. I've had enough of you. Just kill me, God. And God asks in verse 9, so think about what you're seeing here. Jonah had direct communication with God. He had that. And this is still how he's acting. We all think we'd be so much better off if God would just show up and speak to us face to face, but it doesn't matter what's going on or what God is doing if your heart is bitter towards Him. So a face-to-face wouldn't solve that. Were that corrupted? In verse 9, God asks him the same kind of question again from verse 4. This time He asks, Do you do well to be angry about the plant? Which again, He's saying, Are you sure that you're seeing things clearly here, Jonah? God is being extremely merciful to him drawing out his heart, trying to get him to see. The second part of verse 9 is so illuminating. Jonah is a mess. Absolutely I do well to be angry, God. Why are you asking me such a stupid question? I'm sick of you. Don't you know how hot it is out here? I'll tell you, I'm so mad I could literally just die, God. Are you happy? And God has had enough. Look at verse 10. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, 
that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. So maybe he's just numbering the babies. Maybe. And also much cattle. The end. That's it. That's the end of Jonah. That's how this amazing little book ends with an unanswered question from a tormented man. There's no resolution here. We have no clue how Jonah responded. We have no idea whatever happened to him. We can speculate. And I think the reason we don't know, and I think the reason it ends so open-endedly and so anticlimactically is because whatever Jonah's response was or whatever happened to Jonah is not ultimately the purpose of the book of Jonah. I think if that would have been the purpose God had for this book being written, we would have it, and we don't. The resolution is not to be found in the repentance or restoration of Jonah. The point is the mercy of God that is bigger for humanity than our own mercy for humanity ever will be. The lack of a resolution for Jonah is a statement about the all-sufficiency of God alone to save us. And one day God would save us by sending a prophet who was the complete and total antithesis of Jonah. But that prophet wasn't just any man, was it? It couldn't have been another person or the result would have been the same. Jonah is written to tell us that it can't be another person. There's going to be mercy and hope for sinners. It will have to be God's mission, not ours. It'll have to be God doing it, not us. That's the gospel according to Jonah. There's a God on mission in mercy to save sinners through the blood and obedience of His own Son. We are incapable of this. We are incapable of accomplishing it for ourselves, and we are even more incapable of drumming up the mercy we need for this mission to extend to others. I could talk, any preacher to any group of people could talk until he's blue in the face about how we should care about people that are lost and dying. Has it ever actually done any good? Let's just take a hard look. Right? I mean, the statistics, beloved, are staggering in our world right now of how many people there are, people groups that are completely unreached with the gospel. There's over 6,000 of them that have no gospel witness, no Christians around them. Some of them have never even been uh, infiltrated by any outsider at all. And, and, and these are, and instead, we argue theology, like, well, if you know, if there's a guy on an island somewhere and he's never heard the gospel, will he, um, you know, will he be saved in the end or will God, you know, hold him accountable for the fact that he didn't know? And, well, you know, maybe you should go. If you're actually worried about the guy on an island that has never heard anything, then go get him. Go tell him the gospel. But but again, it's all it's just it's just speculation. And the point here is not to make you feel guilty for that. I'm 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 tired of doing that as a pastor. You, it doesn't do anything. Like and it's wrong. I think it's wrong for a pastor in the new covenant to just heap guilt on people. That's not the point here. The point is not that we would feel our guilt. The point is that we would see ourselves for what we truly are and praise God for His salvation, even of us. That's the point of this book. The book of Jonah lets us in on the fact that God will move toward us anyway. 
He's going to do it anyway and save us, even though we couldn't be more undeserving. So Jonah was so twisted in his heart that he couldn't see the painfully obvious irony of his own situation. Right? I mean, Jonah interpreted everything that happened to him incorrectly. He loved that little plant. He cherished it. And he had absolutely nothing to do with its existence. Nothing at all. All he did was benefit from its presence. He didn't plant it. He didn't tend it. He just sat underneath it. And his little relationship with it, through which he fell in love, was less than 24 hours, basically. But oh, how quickly he developed a deep love for what made him comfortable. And I wonder if God was just right in his face somehow by the time you get to verse 11, if he just picked up Jonah by his pompous little neck here and asked him, and should not I pity Nineveh? This great city I made in which there are at least 120,000 living human beings, eternal souls who don't have any clue how to do right or think right. And there's also much cattle there. God doesn't even want to destroy the cows. He's moved with pity. He's telling Jonah that 10 and 11 are God telling Jonah, you don't know who I am. You don't have the slightest clue of my heart or what I'm like. And then there's no answer. And we're meant like Jonah. That question is asked to everybody that reads Jonah. Should not I pity Nineveh? Should not I pity America? Should not I pity Iraq? Should not I pity Syria? Should not I pity Germany? Right? It's, it's, it's a question facing all of us. We're meant to cover our mouths. The God of the universe was moved with pity for idolaters, for sinners, and even for their animals. The word should in verse 11, really? Where does, who can hold a should over God? God. The only one that can tell God should is God. And God is saying here, this is right of me to do. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, Jonah, this is what I do. I'm, I'm God. I pity places like Nineveh. I pity cattle. This is what, it, it's the revelation of who God really is that is the theological issue in Jonah. It's going to be the same kind of thing next week when we get into the book of Job. This is what the covenant Lord of Israel is actually like is what the book of Jonah is meant to get us to ask. That he's like this? He, he, wait a minute, he, he pities all the nations? Remember, when, when this would have been received, that would have been a revelation. He pities all the nations? He's concerned for the world? He relents from disaster and he does it because his heart goes out to sinners? Notice that God does not argue for Nineveh's salvation based on Nineveh's repentance in the text, but on the basis of his unmerited unilateral pity on them. This is who God is. That's actually why God forgives. He doesn't love us because of us, and we want to get that, or we're not going to really enjoy his love the way that we're meant to. R.W. Glenn, a former pastor, says, God's love is demonstrated in its own lack of evidence to support it. So take heart if you're a Ninevite. God loves Ninevites. Take heart if you're the self-righteous, ungrateful prophet. 
the older brother. God loves him too. The immortal souls of human beings are of the utmost importance to God. Jonah and Nahum are the only two books in the Bible to close with a question. Did you know that? Just Jonah and Nahum, and very interestingly, both of those books center on Nineveh. One for judgment, one for mercy. So the book closes so open-endedly and with so much mystery, so that it lands like a brick on us. What happens to us if we aren't merciful? What happens to us if we're resentful? Because let's be honest, extending mercy is not our natural response to receiving mercy. Jonah is like a mirror for us so that we don't ever look within ourselves to know whether or not we deserve mercy. We don't. But God pities. Right? It's, it's, it's not a flattering thing. It's not a flattering thing. But He pities that which He created. And He's not absent. He's not far away. He does care infinitely more than we can possibly imagine. God's pity would one day move Him to send His own Son to absorb His wrath towards sinners. For billions, an incalculable number, God's mercy will triumph over His judgment. His Son's death broke open the world to finally hear of His love. To finally hear of Him just going around commuting sentences for all who believe from every nation. It's amazing how that works in Acts. How you see it all, it's still, by the time you get to Acts 7, it's still just based in Jerusalem. And then what does God do? The sovereign Lord that they prayed to in chapter 4, well, He just blows it up and scatters. And the gospel went to the nations. God's promise to Abraham to bless all the nations would come to fruition then, finally, one day, by God's effort, through God's Son, through the seed of the woman, by the Holy Spirit, through Jesus And Jonah stands in Scripture as a witness, as a preview to the reality and the depth of God's infinite mercy. And if God is like this, how can we be any different? If there's a convicting question that the text is begging of us, the way the book ends, that's what it is. If God is like this, if God looks at horrible, sinful people like this, why is it, how is it that we don't? Beloved, it's a probing question we need to answer in our own lives. Why do we so revile sinful people? What is it? What what is the reason we literally can't stand them? We talked about this all through the book. Jonah has been begging the question all through the book. And let's if you can pretend it's pious. Well, I, I wish they had more respect for God. God is, is okay. He appreciates you like getting in front of him trying to block for him, but he's he's fine. He's fine. He he, he doesn't need us to defend him. If, if if God was worried about looking weak, well the cross just blew all that out of the water. How could we possibly be less merciful than God? Yet we are. It's no accident that God picked the worst people on the earth at the time to spare from disaster that we know of. I mean, that's that's who God picks. So we can't think the guy that just cut us off in traffic or the neighbor that leaves his trash bucket out too long or the girl that didn't like your dress at school or the guy that didn't jump up and down for you when you got a raise or the person in the church that did you wrong that one time. 
those people that if you could, you would just wring their necks for their evil, don't think they're worse than Ninevites. We're surrounded by need. We're surrounded by it, beloved. We're surrounded by immortal souls every day that will issue forth very quickly in God's reckoning to everlasting life or everlasting punishment. We're surrounded by that every single day. So this mission that, that, that God is on, that He calls us into, it, would, it will take us going to some hard places. It will take us doing some hard things. It will take some restructuring of some priorities and the giving up of some traditions and preferences. It will take us learning some lessons and getting really dirty. You know, that, that there's no way to avoid that. The incarnation proves that that's not sinful. Jesus became what He came to save without ever compromising who he was. So that's not a, don't create a false dichotomy. You can go that deep, right? Other Christians might call us tax collectors and gluttons and drunkards and sinners. That's good. That's good. That means you're Christ-like. Whenever you're tempted to throw your hands up in the air in disgust at our nation or the ones that surround it, at the world, remember Jonah. Come back to Jonah. Remember the pity of a holy, sovereign, just God. Our hearts are open before Him. There's nothing we can hide. So as if, if you, if tonight if you feel conviction, remember this. Your heart is wide open to God. He sees it all. He knows exactly what's really going on inside of you. And He loves you infinitely, has pursued you continuously, and will never leave you or forsake you. That's just the beauty of the gospel. The heart of Christianity is found in God's love for sinners, beloved, in people like you and I. And, and remember, let's not kid ourselves. It's one thing to pity people that are pitiful. It's a whole other thing to pity Ninevites. Right? God's pity on them is the smite on our lack of it. Jonah, that, that's, that's what he's doing in the text. Jonah cared about plants more than people. That's what's happening in chapter 4. Oh, he cared about that plant. He loved that plant that he knew for less than a day. That kind of heart actually exists. He was more upset. He was more upset about the sun on his head than the souls of an entire city. That's who Jonah actually was. That's what chapter 4 is doing. It's, it's finally zeroing in and saying, this is who God is. This is actually who Jonah is. What things do we care about more than we care about people? People that God pities. Look at this little book. If, if our hearts aren't full of pity that moves us to mercy for this world, what is it that we think we really know about God? We've gotten something for free in Salvation Beloved. But we have the goal sometimes to be resentful when that's extended to others. Jonah is here to lay us bare and drive us to the cross where Jesus died so that we stop going through religious motions. Listen, beloved, we're going to struggle all our lives with that kind of attitude. Okay? It, it's, we're we're going to struggle. It, it, it's, it's a real struggle. It's, it's not easy to pity sinners, especially ones that aren't pitiful, ones that are proud of it and hurtful about it. And 
In other words, don't think that there's like this one-time commitment you can make. I'm never going to be that kind of person again. Yeah, yeah, we are. Yes, we will be. The point is, is that there's a Savior. Beloved, you won't find refuge. You won't find closeness to Jesus in believing that you're going to hit some stride of, of obedience and morality that will make you feel as comfortable with Him as you want to feel. We're going to struggle. It's better to just be honest about it. Come clean about it. You know, you know what? I don't really like that group of people. God, you, you help me. Help my heart. Like, like, just talk to Him. Work through it. This is who God is. Jonah wants, the book wants to lay us bare, drive us to the cross where Jesus died so that we stop going through religious motions. Beloved, if we would all stop trying to appear righteous, like it, it, it's not the main thing. It's not the goal. When God asks, shouldn't I pity Nineveh? What He means is, in context, Jonah, how can you not? And so the question is extended to us. When God is saying, should I not pity, how can you and I not? Where our hearts are cold towards people, God's heart is warm. As we sit back while they plunge towards death, God has moved and sent His Son. So even, even the resolution, the fact that there's no resolution and it's meant to lay our hearts bare is not the final point of the book. Jesus tells us how to interpret Jonah. Jesus tells us what to do with Jonah. God's missionary heart overrode Jonah's hateful one. That's the beauty of this book. God's missionary heart overrode Jonah's hateful one. God made up for Jonah's lack of concern. God made up for Jonah's stubborn heart. Jonah was helplessly, hopelessly flawed, and God used him to bring an incomparable revival to a city like Nineveh. Do you know what hope there is in that? He can use me. He can use you. You don't have to have the perfect heart to love other people and take the gospel to them. That's very good news. Because we're all paralyzed. So often, like, I, I, I want to... I want to do things, but what if I mess it up? What I'm not good enough and you aren't the main thing. And again, beloved, it, it, the world is much more damaged by our pretense that we're righteous than they are damaged by our inability to be perfect. Don't, let them see you fail. Let them see you lose your temper. Let them see you say things you shouldn't say and do things you shouldn't do. And let them see you and hear you tell them, yeah, and my God forgives me and has mercy on me. That's the hope of the gospel. If, if, we, if we present this image of perfection, we're presenting an image that that's what God requires, that's what God accepts, and pitiful people like Ninevites won't come near that. They won't come near it. We are His instruments. And there's not a plan B that footnotes the Great Commission. So let's get real and honest about our struggles and about God's power and God's grace because broken vessels make the best evangelists. They always have. Jonah calls to us now, today with our Savior, go, go and make disciples of every nation. No nation, no person is beyond the range of this God's mercy, compassion, concern, and love. Those that know God most deeply know Him primarily as a Savior as a God of mercy and forgiveness and love. 
And unfortunately, somehow, there can be a great difference in the demeanor of a person who's just been saved and a person who's been a Christian for 40 years. It's in the missional heart of God that we find a friend. It's love that constrains us. It's mercy that is meant to be our defining characteristic. The Bible's not a textbook. It's not what it's for. It's not why you and I are here. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware the leaven of Jonah. We're here in this moment because God is like this in Jonah chapter 4. So the answer to our hardened hearts is not another guilt trip. Beloved, the answer is this. Come to Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. There you and I will see the one who forgives us for our indifference and pities us for our sinfulness, who is powerful enough to accomplish this mission through broken vessels and merciful enough to be patient with us in our lack of love. It's in Jesus that we find the embodiment of God's heart. It's by beholding Him that our hearts will soften for others. Again, He he doesn't need your good behavior. He doesn't need you to be perfect. He has Jesus at His right hand. If He wants to see perfection, all He has to do is look to His right. That's it. He's left us here to go fishing. That's why we're here to point to the one that does have all the answers, which is not you and I. He left us here to go out into the highways and the byways and bring other sinners into the marriage supper of the Lamb. Everybody limps there. Everybody. Except Jesus. Beloved, something greater than Jonah is here tonight. Something greater than Jonah. The gospel according to Jonah is this. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot save others. But Jesus Christ, the willing missionary, the faithful prophet, has not only offered up the payment for our sins, but the obedience for our shortcomings. The heart of the God of Jonah 4, 10 and 11 was embodied in the flesh by His Son, Jesus And when you see this little glimpse into the heart of God, when you see God's concern for even the cattle, that's when you know that Jesus really is going to be making all things new. Everything sad will come untrue. Everything broken will be restored. All creation. God sent His own Son to be the vehicle of His indiscriminate compassion to every nation, tribe, language, I close with a quote from Mark Dever who writes it like this. Where Jonah was reluctant, Jesus was willing. Where Jonah complained, Jesus went meekly. Where Jonah was merely uncomfortable, Jesus was scourged. Where Jonah merely preached, Jesus died. That's who God is for us, beloved. Rejoice. Repent and rest. We are transformed when we behold the merciful, missional God of Jonah in the face of the true prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. I'll be standing down front here as we sing our last song. If any of you need to come and pray or need to come and talk to me because you have prayed, I'll be here and then we'll close. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for
this night. God, I, I thank you for what we discovered about you and your word. Lord, I thank you that when the text is a mirror that shows us what we really are, that the shadow of the cross is bigger. And so, Lord, as we wrestle through that, as, as we wrestle through our own lack of pity, our own, um, our own lack of mercy, Lord, it, it's, it's real. It's real. But, Father, you, you, your grace is greater than this. And, Lord, it's in you welcoming, welcoming us in spite of that that we have a message to give to others. We, we know the gospel uniquely, personally, individually, through our own inability to be perfect. Lord, you transform us. You, you are merciful to us. You love us. You come close to us. You aren't ashamed of us. You aren't ashamed of us, Father. And so we thank you. And God, I pray that as we think about these things over the next few moments and maybe into the week, that you will be with us, that we will not be crushed by its weight, but driven to the cross of Jesus Christ. And this we ask in his name. Amen.